0: This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Meyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Meyer.
1: What would be the missing, what would be missing if we didn't have the book of Acts? Think about that for a moment. What would be missing if we didn't have the book of Acts? Something that prompted me to talk about this here today was a question that I was accosted with today with this. Are there any Bibles in which the book of Acts does not appear? And I thought for a minute, I'm not aware of any such thing. I'm not aware of any such thing such as the apocryphal books, That uh, are not contained in the Old Testament, generally speaking, certainly for Protestants, but are contained in the Catholic Bible. I am not aware of any Bibles whatsoever, and so I went to do a little bit of research to find out if there were any Bibles in which the book of Acts does not appear. And I could find no such reference. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything out there, but I could find no such reference, so I suspect that this question probably arose out of something that appeared maybe on the History Channel or some other kind of television program that is always out to try to debunk what is contained in the Bible, the implications of the Bible, and facts concerning and related to the Bible. But today on Viewpoint, we're going to continue our little series that we began several weeks ago about how to study the Bible. Now, this is not dealing with uh, Russia, this is not dealing with Ukraine, this is not dealing with uh, COVID, this is not dealing with any of those kinds of issues or China, but it's dealing with something that is so foundational to your life and mine that it's critically important that we have a better understanding of this matter of how to study the Bible. Now, when the question is asked or the statement is made how to study the Bible, almost instantly what's conjured up in people's minds is some sort of mechanical approach. Well, I'm going to, like like they used to say back in the days that I was growing up, you want to read the Bible through in a year, three chapters a day and five on Sunday. Well, quite frankly, yeah, that is how you can read the Bible through in a year, But it has almost nothing to do with the study of the Bible. You know why that is? Because the Bible never tells us to read it. Now, that may come as a surprise. But the Bible does not tell us to read the Bible. It tells us to study the Bible and to meditate upon it. And to believe it. To believe, to study, and to meditate. But what does that imply? You see, the longer, the more questions you ask, the more questions there are to ask. The more statements that you make, the more rhetorical questions have to be asked in order to truly answer the question as to how to study the Bible. We learned previously why we should study the Bible, that we should not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because the word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and even deserves the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That's why a lot of people don't want to study the Bible, because they really don't want the Bible to pierce through their thoughts and hearts. They want information, but they don't want transformation, because they realize it will cause change. So the fear of change actually is a put-off for an awful lot of people to truly study the Bible for all that it's worth. Well, the Scriptures tell us that the Word is truth. Jesus said, my Word is truth. And so, that's one of the reasons why we should study the Bible, if we want to embrace and understand the truth. Also, to know the will of God. Also, because, as the psalmist says, the Word illuminates our path. It's a light unto our path that we might not sin against God. And help us to discern deception. These are all reasons why we should study the Bible. Who must study the Bible? Everyone should study the Bible, especially those who call themselves by the name of the Lord. When should I study the Bible? Well, I should study the Bible when I need to be fed and washed, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Early in the morning, will I direct my prayer and study the Word and all day long? In fact, the words should be on our lips all day long in one way or another. So what must I study? Well, we're supposed to study God's words. His words are truth. That's what's contained in the Bible. What version should we study? Well, uh, to a certain extent, that's a matter of opinion. Uh, I have my opinion. You probably have yours. Many pastors have their opinions. And the opinions have changed over the years. During my sojourn as a Christian, the King James Version was by far the go-to version of the Bible. And by the way, it still is. Believe it or not, it still is the number one go-to version of the Bible. No matter what you think, no matter what somebody tells you, it still is the number one go-to version of the Bible. In the 1970s, early on, there was the... Uh, A version of the Bible that came out that uh, uh, everybody was going to the Living Bible. And then after that came the New International Version. My wife actually had a professor who was part of the translating team for the New International Version. And that began to take over. And then you have the Revised Standard Version and you have the English Standard Version. You have all these, all of these multiplied versions. Well, We could have a whole conversation concerning those versions. We're not going to do that today. We've done that previously. Commentaries are helpful, but they're not the end result. In fact, I warn people about buying so-called study Bibles. The reason I warn people about buying so-called study Bibles is because the notes in the study Bibles are not God's Word. Their are man's thoughts and opinions concerning God's word. And that's what's gotten our whole country and the Western world in trouble with regard to the so-called pre-trib rapture. That doctrine or teaching came about as a result of two people. John Nelson Darby and Charles Schofield. Charles Cyrus Schofield. When Charles Schofield in the early 1900s came out with his Schofield Reference Bible... He had a lot of notes in there, and in those notes, he incorporated the thoughts of John Nelson Darby and his own thoughts concerning eschatology and concerning the rapture. That's where the predominant source for the so-called pre-trib rapture came from. Prior to that, pre-trib rapture was not really a significant part of American teaching or thinking. But it took over an entire seminary. That's right. That teaching took over an entire seminary. And through those people, those pastors have been disseminated throughout the whole country and the world. We need to understand the role of commentaries and so-called study Bibles. It is my distinct opinion and recommendation to everyone who professes to be a true follower of Jesus Christ to spend very little time in study Bibles and in commentaries and more time studying the Bible for yourself and asking the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal it to you line upon line, precept upon precept, so that it can be applied in your life, not through information, but for transformation. We'll be right back after that now to talk about our attitudes for access to the Bible. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. So what would we be missing if we didn't have the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts doesn't have any rival in terms of a book spanning so many different lands. Within the Bible, that is, it recounts the birth of the church age and its content has no parallel in the New Testament. Some of Paul's letters correspond to each other and the four gospels overlap, but most of what's found in the Acts can be found in no other document. And without the book of Acts, there would be no account of the fire and wind at at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, no description of Peter's encounter with Cornelius, no narrative of the rise of the multi-ethnic church in Antioch, no story of Paul's visit to Philippi, Corinth, or Ephesus, and no account of Paul's trials in Jerusalem and Caesarea. In fact, Acts is also Unique in that it might be our only writing from a Gentile in addition to the Gospel of Luke. Why is that? Because Luke is believed to have been the author, a Gentile and an author, of both the Gospel of Luke and of the book of Acts. Acts is also unparalleled in that it recounts a new stage in Christian history that is post-Jesus life. Everything before that has been either pre-Jesus or with Jesus and no longer are readers and characters looking toward a Messiah, now the readers get a glimpse of Jesus' followers, and they're seeking to be faithful to Jesus after he has departed. What does that look like? The new community, the Christian community, must figure out how to act now that Christ is gone. How will they respond to persecution and the pressures? And how do they live under the rule of Rome... As a marginal and contested community. And Acts presents the foundations of the newborn church. So, the book of Acts is very important. It is largely an informational book. But that doesn't mean there isn't anything transformational in the book. It's just largely an informational book. It's a bridge, so to speak for the writings of the New Testament, from the Gospels into the Epistles. So, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. It tells of the founding of the Christian church and the spread of its message to and through the entire Roman Empire. So, if you want to study the book of Acts, one of the things you could do if you're just interested in information, you could actually go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia. And you could uh, put in uh, the book of Acts, and you would get what I have in front of me right now, a multi-page, printed out, uh, 13-page spread of the Acts of the Apostles. And it's quite interesting. It contains all kinds of information, most of which is true, some of which is opinion, and overall, it gives you a good overall look at the book of Acts. But it's no substitute for studying the book of Acts. No substitute for studying the book of Acts. For instance, when you go to Acts chapter 4, and you find that the that Peter and John have healed a man at the gate beautiful, and... Uh, the man goes leaping and praising God into the temple and the Jewish leaders take him to task and then they call the apostles in to excoriate them and to warn them that if they continue to preach in the name of Jesus, things aren't going to go well with them. They're going to come under the, the tyrannical jurisdiction of the high priest and that's not going to be a pretty picture. So they beat them and then ordered them to get out of there and leave. Well, here's what the apostles prayed when they got together with the rest of the believers. Lord, grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by reaching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. Now, that's one of the most important verses to understand in the book of Acts. But it's almost never taught. Why is it never taught? Because it's not informational. It's transformational, and it tells us what the apostles believed, how they lived, how they trusted God, and what they did as a result of their trust in God, which goes against the grain for many, many, many pastors and denominations today. So, they don't like to study that in the word of God. They disagree with it. Lord, grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy child Jesus." Whole denominations and churches reject that. You see, they're not studying to show themselves approved under God. And there's a reason for that. And it has everything to do with our attitudes when we approach the Word of God. Now, I'll leave you to contemplate and think about that particular passage. We're not going to spend our time dwelling on that, because our focus here today is how to study the Bible. So for the balance of our time here today we're going to focus on primarily our attitude as we approach the Bible or as I call it the attitude for access. If you were to go to Psalm 119 which I used to despise because it's the longest book in the Bible the longest excuse me the longest chapter in the Bible And, of course, if you're trying to read the Bible through in a year, three chapters a day and five on Sunday, you don't want to get to Psalm 119 because it's too long. And so all of a sudden you moan, oh, I've got to read Psalm 119 and two more chapters. Oh, no. Oh, but I'll tell you, friends, as I have gotten into Psalm 19 in years since then, It has become one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Would you like to know why? Because it tells us about the psalmist's attitude toward God's word. In fact, I put in the margin, wrote in red in the margin, proper attitude toward God's word. Hmm. Hmm. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. And then in Psalm 119, verse 120, he says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Oh, So how does that compare with, oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night, which is also in Psalm 119. You see, if you're going to approach the Bible with a proper attitude for access, you must first have the sense of the fear of the Lord. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. If you do not have that foundational awe and sense of the fear of the Lord, you are not going to properly receive the word of God. You're just not. Because you're going to think that somehow you can quibble with what is said. Because after all, it's just in front of you, and you have your hands on the Word, and you can decide whether to accept it or not, whether to reject it or not, whether to accept it in part, reject it in part, and so on. That would be your attitude. And that's the attitude of the majority of Christians today, even pastors. If it were not true, if we go back to Acts chapter 4, When the disciples cry out, Lord, grant unto thy servants with it all uh, boldness, we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done in the name of your holy child Jesus, then they would embrace that. But they don't embrace it because there's something about humankind, whether pastors or people alike, it doesn't matter, from pulpit to pew, from Uh, presidents, to potentates, to uh, high priests, to popes, and so on, taking issue with what God has said for their own reasons. When we do that, what we're actually doing is testifying to the fact we don't have complete awesome respect for God. And if you don't, why should God entrust the revelation of his word to you? when you don't have that kind of awesome respect for his word. You get the point. Why should a father or a mother provide further detailed information to a child, a son, or a daughter uh, concerning uh, issues of life or so on when the son or daughter already rejects all or part of what the parent has already shared? They're not going to share anymore until that child comes to the place of respecting, honoring, with a sense of awe, mother and father's authority in the house. It's the same thing with God. Then if we go to Psalm 119, verse uh, 117, he says, I will have respect unto your statutes continually. Respect and reverence. Really. Do we really have respect and reverence for the word of God? If we don't have the awesome fear of the Lord to begin with, whatever reverence or awesome respect we think we have for the word of God is diminished to the extent that we do not have the fundamental fear of the Lord. Realizing he is God, I'm not, and what he has said, he has said, and the question is not whether I agree with it, whether I'm going to obey it or not, receive it or not. So you can begin to see our attitude for access to the Word of God is extremely important. Now, you can get all kinds of information concerning the Bible without these proper attitudes for access. But if you want to truly understand and have the Bible come alive to you, then these attitudes for access are critical. For instance, you could go to Wikipedia and get a complete outline of the book of Acts. I'm looking at it right now. It's quite interesting. You could get a discussion of so many things concerning the book of Acts right there from Wikipedia. But it's not going to give any genuine spiritual application, and it's just going to be a dead letter. It's information without transformation, and the purpose of the Bible is not to inform us, but to transform us. So the information is there for a purpose. Now, in Psalm 119, verse 72, we're given another perspective concerning the Bible. The law of your mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. This was the attitude of the psalmist. The law of your mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Well, guess what? Years ago, in 2014, we had a major fire in our home. So major was the fire that somewhere between 8 and 11 engines came up and rumbled through our street to try to put this thing out. It cost us 16 months in the house. Everything in the entire house, everything had to be removed. Everything. What did I take out? When I discovered that this thing was raging, I went and got my Bible. Now, I could have gotten any number of Bibles because I had a number of Bibles. So what Bible did I actually get that was more important to me than thousands of gold and silver and all the antiques and things that we had in the house? What was more important? It was the Bible that I had been working with for 30-plus years that had all of my highlights, All of my underlinings, my notes, and so on, that the Holy Spirit had revealed to me over those 30 years. It was more precious to me than anything else. And because of that, I'm able to share a lot of this with you. So, what is the value that you place upon the Word of God? Is it just sort of a theoretical value? Will it just the word of God? Yeah, I believe it from cover to cover and to the cover too. Except those portions, by the way, that I don't quite accept. But generally, I speak. I, I believe the word of God. Is that your attitude? Hmm. You only place a little bit of value on it, don't you? Is it more precious to you than thousands of gold and silver? More important to you than your necessary food? Oh, wait till we get to the next one.
0: There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived Save America Ministries' website at saveus.org.
1: Do you know why most marriages fail? Most Christian marriages fail? Most Christian marriages fail because they don't have the fear of the Lord, they don't truly reverence the Word of God, they don't consider the Word of God of immense value, and they're refusing to humble themselves under the Word of God. Peter said, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season, then casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. Perhaps starting in your marriage. We don't we have to approach the word of God with an attitude of humility. To approach the word of God with an attitude of humility means I am going to agree with what God says because he is God and I'm not. And then I'm going to allow him to work out the application of what he has said, his truth, because it is true. He knows best, father knows best in the household of faith, and I'm going to trust him to do what he said he would do. That's the attitude of humility. Now let's apply that to our marriages. What the first reason why Christian marriages fail is because they're not Christian in the first place. A woman marries a, a man, a man marries a woman that's not truly a believer. They compromised Or they thought they were going to use the marriage to evangelize the other person. Marriage is not an evangelistic enterprise, friends. We're told not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There's a reason. And that doesn't just apply to marriages. It has to do with business dealings as well, believe it or not. That's why so many of them fail. Partnerships and so on. How many times have I heard the painful cries of professing Christians who entered into partnerships with unbelievers, thinking it was a good deal, only to have the unbeliever defraud them, take advantage, off, or whatever. So, marriage, marrying the wrong person. Number two, the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. One of the main reasons why marriages fall apart is husbands don't love their wives as Christ loved the church and give themselves to their wives. The Bible says that wives should submit themselves unto their husbands as unto the Lord. One of the main reasons marriages fall apart is that wives don't submit themselves unto their husbands as unto the Lord. The Bible says that each of them, husband and wife, must submit themselves to each other in the fear of God. One of the main reasons why marriages, Christian marriages, fall apart is because they are not mutually submitting themselves to each other in the fear of the Lord. Are you beginning to get the implication here? These things are not difficult. This is not rocket science. This is God's wisdom. Another reason why Christian marriages fall apart is because either husbands or wives withhold the sexual union from the other. The Apostle Paul writes very clearly about that. Do not do such a thing except by agreement and for a short time for fasting and prayer. When you do that, friend, whether it's a husband or wife, you are defrauding your spouse. That's biblical. You're defrauding your spouse. Now, of course, we could apply things like pornography, uh, whether for husband or wives, and that's an instance where you're not loving your spouse, you're not submitting to your spouse, you're engaging in fornication, you're engaging in adultery, viewpoint adultery. Jesus says very clearly that when we do that, it's as if we have committed the act itself. Are you beginning to get the message? And then finally... The message of the New Testament is not a message of divorce. It's a message of forgiveness and repentance. So, the scripture tells us very clearly, Jesus himself said, If you will not forgive others their trespasses against you, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you. Are you listening? So the message for Christian marriages is forgiveness, not divorce. The message for Christian marriages is repentance, not stubborn, continuing on in selfish behavior. I'll do it my way. You see how you apply the Word of God? It's not that difficult. The problem is we don't want to. We say we want to in theory but we don't really want to because it requires that we see God as God and obey him as God, realizing he's the father of the household of faith and father knows best, and if we don't do what father says and what God has written, then we are going to be in deep, deep trouble, Arrogating ourselves as if we are God. So we must humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. In Psalm 119, verse 97 uh, to 104, we find another uh, situation which uh, I personally think is one of the highlights. And I want to share this, this whole thing with you, and then we'll attach a, uh, a category to this that I think you'll understand. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Notice it doesn't say he reads it, it's his meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, have made me wiser than my enemies, for they're ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I've refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste! Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Do you know what these verses are telling us? They're telling us that we have to approach the Word of God, the Bible, in our study and meditation with an attitude of gratitude. If we don't approach from an attitude of gratitude, we'll resist, we'll complain we'll say oh i i don't want to do that i don't want to i don't want that i'll accept this over here but i won't accept that in other words we're not grateful for what god is doing here we're not grateful we don't really believe what he's telling us is for our benefit we're not we're not really grateful i'll tell you when i when, when the lord impressed upon me the importance of gratitude about 25 years ago it changed everything oh it was just monumental how it changed my outlook even change my attitude toward my wife and so on, the attitude of gratitude. Then in James chapter 4, verse 7, there's a very frequently uh, referenced passage there, and it goes like this. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Is there something wrong with what I just quoted? Absolutely there's something wrong with it because it's not accurate. That passage says this, submit to God, then resist the devil. You know what we want to do? Resist the devil in our own power and don't want to submit to God. You know, that happened in a big way in the Old Testament, right after the victory at Jericho. You may recall this. There was a little town called Ai. And it wasn't talking about artificial intelligence either, AI. And uh, this little town seemed so simple to conquer that the Israelites said, okay, we're we're just going to go up there and we're going to go after these guys and we're going to tear them apart and uh, have victory. And Joshua said, oh, no, 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 not so fast. Because somebody in our midst has broken God's commandment and has put their hands on the spoil at Jericho that God forbid. His name was Achan. And they went through all the tribes of Israel in order to discover who it was. Finally, Joshua said, Achan, confess what you have done. And he confessed that he had taken some silver and gold and some uh, garments and buried them in his tent And Joshua brought Achan, his entire family, and all his stuff out, and they were burned in the valley of Achor. The problem was, though, that the Israelites didn't realize what a terrible trespass they had made. Joshua did. He said, do not go up to Ai. The Spirit of the Lord is not among you. They said, oh, yeah, look what we did at Jericho. Of course, the spirit of the Lord is among us. We're the children of Israel. We're, we're the chosen people. So they went up to Ai and got their rear ends beaten to a smithereen. They ran like a bunch of chickens. God had to teach them a lesson. They did not have awe for God. They didn't reverence his word. They didn't value it the way they should have. They were not walking in humility. They were not grateful for what he had done at Jericho. They were not in submission to his word, his will, and his ways. And therefore, God had to teach him a terrifying lesson. They didn't really believe him, and neither do many of us. And many of us are having to learn terrifying lessons. Some more, some less, because we don't submit first to God and then Try to resist the devil. Do you see how important all of this is? And we're not finished yet. Not by a long shot. We'll finish Attitude for Access here today. But then, the next time we go after this, we're going to be looking at some other things that are going to really strike to our hearts because if we really want to study the bible if we really are serious about understanding and receiving the word of god by his spirit everything has to change in our attitudes we'll be right back have you ever considered what the early church was like
0: incredible but the same can be found right now go to saveus.org and click sell church we can revive first century christianity for the 21st century it's about people not programs it's about a body not a building that's saveus.org click
1: sell church do you believe that the word of god is alive sharper than a two-edged sword That it pierces even through the dividing of soul and spirit and discerns even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Well, let me ask you a question. As we've been talking about this here today, is there anything that has been said that has pricked your heart? That the Holy Spirit has used to prick your heart? You know what that was? The Holy Spirit discerning the thoughts and the intents of your heart. That's how he works. And he's watching over his word to perform it. But if his word is not presented in such a way that the Holy Spirit can do anything with it, then all it is is information. And then we pride ourselves in what we think we know about the Bible. And it's utterly meaningless. It's worthless. Does nothing. What we need is a Holy Spirit transformation, don't we? We need the Word of God to come truly alive and pierce our hearts. Only then will we have real revival in our country. That's the only way it happens. Really. Many of you know that I wrote a book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. Do you know that the number one reason why we are seduced and deceived is because we really don't know the word of God. We haven't studied to show ourselves approved. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We haven't learned how to truly apply it to the issues of life and our time. And so we're easily seduced. And the enemy of our souls knows that. He even used the word of God against Jesus himself. Remember? He even said it's written. You should, you could cast yourself down off of this parapet and the angels will bear you up lest you cast your foot against a stone. Satan can quote the Bible, but when he does, he distorts it. He deceives. He seduces. How many people quote the Bible? in order to justify their divorces. It's amazing. How many pastors will quote the Bible to try to help their parishioners justify a remarriage when their spouse is still living, even though Jesus caused an it adultery? <laughs> it's just, it's mind-boggling, friends, what we human beings are capable of doing in the name of Christ. Deceiving and seducing one another, even in the name of Christ. Can you imagine how God the Father shakes his head in the heavens as he looks down at us? Such pitiful creatures that can't even get the simplest things straight and think somehow we're equal to God. It's just, it's just amazing. Well, in Psalm 119, verse 6, It tells us what I think about our expectations. It starts in 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep your righteous judgments. There's an expectation that we have to have. There's a commitment that we have to have. We go to Psalm 119 verse 15 to 16 we find this even more clearly. I will meditate in your precepts and have respect under your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. Why? Why is he going to meditate and delight and not forget the word? Because of what the psalmist knows he's going to get when he does meditate in the word and delight in it and not forget, in other words, be a doer of the word and not just hear his He knows what God is going to do. God is going to watch, he's watching over his word to perform it on our behalf if we will respect him and respect it and do his will. All of Psalm 19 reflects this attitude of expectation from God. Many of us have an expectation from God, but we're not willing to do what he asks us to do in order to fulfill that expectation. We want it on our own terms. And then in Psalm 119, verse 159, we have the final uh, attitude for access that I have laid out here. Consider how I love your precepts. Quicken or revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Consider how I love your precepts. Do you really love the Word of God? No, really. Do do you really love the Word of God? If you did, you'd spend time every day in it, wouldn't you? You know, when... My wife and I were going together. I'll never never forget this. and you know I was a, a junior in college, and she was a senior in high school, and we had met on the front steps of her church and uh, on a Sunday evening, and we both believed that that was God's uh, fortuitous uh, plan because she had had other plans that evening that didn't work out. And here I came up the front steps, and she was right there on the front steps of the church waiting for her other high school friends that had gone to camp, and they didn't return. But there I was. And so we're very grateful for that. Very, very grateful for that. But after that time... There was something that clicked in my own mind and heart. And I just wanted to be with Kathy. I would do anything I could, drive distances, even for 15 or 20 minutes with her. I would do anything I could to be with her. Is that the attitude that we have toward the Lord and his word? Some people might say, well, I, I, I pray day, all day long. Well, that's good. That's good. But if you don't have the word of God in your mind and in your heart and dwelling deeply in you so that, like the psalmist has written here, oh, how I love thy law, Thy commandments. They're in my meditation all the day. If you don't have that attitude, you don't really love God. Not really. You have a form of love that it it's not complete. Because if you did, you'd valued his word. You'd want to be with him more, wouldn't you? It wasn't until the late 1970s, and I was in a hiatus between two different bar exams in California, and the Holy Spirit really moved upon my heart. And I realized that even though I believed the Bible and I was a, a, a genuine follower of Christ, I, I, I just, I, I knew a lot about the Bible. And I could argue about different things in the Bible, but I discovered that that doesn't do any good. My My attitude about the Bible wasn't quite right. It wasn't on center with God. And so I made a vow to the Lord. Remember, this is in the, about 1977. And I said, Father, for this day forward, I'm going to spend quality time in your word every single day without fail. No matter what. Sick or well, if I'm able, I'm going to do it. Whether I'm on vacation or not, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what trials I'm facing, no matter what stresses I'm facing, that's what I'm going to do. And you know what? That's exactly what I've done. And you know what began to happen as a result? Complete transformation. I began to value the word of God in ways I had never ever seen before. It started to come alive. It started to connect in ways that I never thought possible. I would not be able to be before you today if I had not made that vow and begun that promise before God and kept it. For better or worse, I would not be able to do that. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation meditation day and night. Is that your attitude Now, here they are, the attitudes for access. First, awe of God or the fear of the Lord. Then reverence for God. Then valuing his word. Humility, an attitude of humility. An attitude of gratitude for what God has given us through his word. An attitude of submission to his authority and the authority of his word. An attitude of expectation that when I go to his word, that ultimately he is going to fulfill the promises that he's made in his word if I will continue in his word. And finally, love for his word. I hope this has been somewhat helpful to to you, to many. Because of its connectivity to the issue of deception and seduction, many have seen the connectivity when they've read the book Seduction of the Saints. That's why they say it's the most important book they've ever read other than the Bible. Because it's caused the Bible to come alive in such relevant ways. If you're interested, it's an $18 book, yours for $15. On our website, Save us.org. We're not here to sell books. We're here to convey a message. Every one of the books we promote here that I've written are not about selling books. If you only knew, we don't make any money for these books. We don't. If we sold 100,000 copies, maybe yes, but we don't. Why is that? Because people don't love the word that much. Not really. They want the blessings of the Lord without his burdens. Really? How about you? If you're interested, the book is on our website, saveus.org, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. $15.00. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, PO Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, and in terms of applications of the word, you might want to seriously consider, since we talked quite a bit about marriage here at the beginning of the program today, get a copy of our book, Lasting Love. Enduring Secrets for Marital Success. You know why it connects with this? Because the foundation of that book are seven unique, we could call them secrets for marital success, that are actually based on the authority of the Word of God, that if you will work the Word, the Word will work in you and your marriage, just like it has in ours. It's a $14 beautiful uh, book, simple to read, and it will encourage you to the max. $10. We'll put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries. PO Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia 23255. Write a check at five dollars for postage and handling. If you get both of those books, only seven dollars total for postage and handling. Thanks for joining us. Seriously consider becoming a partner, friends. There's nobody that makes any money through this program. Not me. Not our office staff. Nobody receives any money from your donations period this is not a money-making enterprise this is a demonstration of the father's love and compassion to repair the way of the lord for history's final hour god bless and be a blessing